Welcome to the Enneagram with Chelsea and Nicole. Today we're reviewing so many of the things that I've learned and noted over the five years we've been working together and from Nicole's over 20 years of experience working with the Enneagram. I'm excited to hear what you have heard because I can't remember. <laughs> the main knowledge drop. So we have a lot to cover and we're going to get started. So you've been practicing the Enneagram for over 20 years. And what I've taken away from what you've shared in your experience is that for you, it's revealed less of a personality type being system and more of a map of human strengths. And, but more importantly, the source of those strengths from a deeper soul level. And for you, it's giving you the lens to appreciate and more accurately observe human strengths. I mean, it's a complex tool as we, as we keep repeating, and it's pretty expansive and it's useful in many ways. For me personally, that's what really drew me in to it is I love experiencing and observing human brilliance and to have a tool that actually maps that in ways that that enable me to identify it in durable, reliable ways is is just fun. We've had a ton of fun with it. Absolutely. I mean, it's the crystal ball. I joke all the time <laughs> because of its accuracy. Yeah. Um, and the Enneagram is one tool, and we've talked about this a lot too, of many tools that we can use to address the challenges of our day. So when we think about the way that we're engaged in the fourth industrial revolution. We're living in a world that's experiencing climate change, pandemics, and we have really vast impacts on our health, including our mental health. So the question becomes, and I think part of what the Enneagram is there to help us work through, is how do we evolve and adapt to navigate and to understand and to bring a different level of intelligence to the forefront as we work through a lot of the challenges of our day. There are times in which more is demanded of humanity. <laughs> Just because of what we're being surrounded with, what is facing us. And I think, you know, for me personally, I am committed to growth in general always my whole life. But I think that there are circumstances, there are historical times where we have the opportunity to rise to the occasion and to help each other by helping really, I suppose, evolve our own selves. Like how can we really, how else can we actually help humanity more than making our own selves more healthy and integrated and well-adjusted? I mean, there's really nothing more powerful than we can do is to just, you know, become more and more excellent, expansive human beings. I get that, you know, throughout history of time, you know, we've always struggled. Humans have always struggled. And every generation thinks that this is the worst of history. And, and yet I think all of that means is that, you know, we do suffer, humans suffer. And how can we actually reduce the suffering there were a lot of world leaders running through my mind as you were saying that like the impact that we can have on doing the on the world by doing the personal work but the way i always think about humans and culture is that we all have an ownership and responsibility in the decisions that we're making every single day and so being able to be more evolved personally and more developed and more healthy allows us to participate in healing the world really i mean it sounds big yeah. and broad that's that's what it is so the invitation here with the Enneagram, and like we've been very clear that 
This is not a one size fits all. It's not an easy path to quick fix. But the invitation is to engage in the complexity of life and really to fight that cultural conditioning for bite-sized, easy to digest, easy to understand, simplified complexity so we can understand and move on. Like again, and that's another social conditioning that fast is better versus really wrestling with something over many years. So instead the invitation is to engage in the reality of the world and which takes time, capacity, skills, effort, work. And this mm -hmm. work both grows us, but also there's a benefit to us. It reduces our anxiety, our pain and our suffering. It's also increasing the ability to have intimacy. Like I think that we, for, you know, there's, there's layers of, of benefits, right? You know, the first is reducing anxiety and then our suffering, but then also as a result is um, having better and healthier relationships, navigating the humans around us with more grace and kindness and humility and care and dignity. And as a result, we can be nicer to ourselves and others and, and, in, and in ways that absolutely makes our relationship stronger and feed us in a way like it's food for the soul. I mean, there's nothing more healing and more satisfying than having a really strong community or relationships with people to whatever depth we have. Right. And I'm not suggesting that all of our relationships need to have intense intimacy. I'm not saying that, but in terms of increasing our capacity for intimacy so that on whatever level we're at with humans, that it has a certain baseline quality and how that is good for us and healthy for us. The Enneagram is a tool that helps us uncover more so the source of our anxiety, which ultimately comes from our fears and induces our stress responses, which then wreaks havoc, right? On these relationships and interpersonal dynamics. And humans unconsciously or maybe semi-consciously work to solve our anxiety before we're actually aware of the source or the true problems. But the Enneagram is a tool that we can use to help manage and navigate that by providing a map of the stress responses based on our operating type. Yeah. One of the things about anxiety and, and stress and <laughs> pressure and fears is that it usually forces us to have an immediate reaction. And those reactions are typically fight or flight, right? Like they're designed for a moment of danger. And yet in the modern world, we are not often in immediate danger. That, that um, occurrence that is kind of embedded in our DNA doesn't work very well. And so <laughs> to bring some consciousness to that, that our immediate reaction as a unconscious experience of potential death, you know, isn't real in most moments. And so what are our alternatives so that we're not as destructive in our lack of awareness that, wow, I'm not going to die right now. <laughs> and I know that my part of my human brain is experiencing an intense reaction and, and how instead can we notice that and use that to discover what's underneath it and then create more conscious, intelligent ways to respond. So, I mean, we, we kind of know this, right? Like reacting, you know, instead of responding and all these things, but if you don't have enough data 
or intelligence to work with, it's, it's more challenging to actually execute that and take a beat and, or even, you know, really have the tools to, to really dig deep enough to locate the source of it with any accuracy. So that's kind of what we're up to. And that takes time. The point for today is that the awareness that this map gives me allows me to notice moments where I'm operating out of stress and choose a better response. Yeah, exactly. And we can give, uh, there's plenty of examples <laughs> to go here. We will, so we, we will do that. We will out ourselves fully. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, um, so another thing is that one of the most interesting things about the Enneagram is just how ancient it is. It's over 2000 years old. Most people don't realize this when they're stacking it up across personality typing systems and compared to other tools, what's unique about it because it's so ancient is that it has been tested by time, of course, and it's likely been in the hands of most all psychological framework leaders and philosophical leaders. Yeah, and social scientists, whatever. I mean, you know, it, it, I wouldn't authoritatively say, say that, but that's why I said it's been in the hands of many, <laughs> many different paradigms over, you know, the 2000 years that it's existed. It's definitely um, been influenced by multiple traditions and multiple sources of intelligence and then tested. That's the point of it. Yeah. 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 And we talked a little bit before about like, why are we seeing and hearing so much about it now? And earlier in this conversation, we talked about the needs, the demands of our current day. We have talked a little bit about it could be on the rise because of increasing human problems. And when people are experiencing that, whether it's subconscious or not, experiencing that conflict or that desire to grow the quality of the tool really matters. And this is one that's deeply accurate. We joke about it being creepily accurate um, and extremely comprehensive. So it's really more about identifying core fears, desires, and brilliances that are coded into who we are and less about behaviors. The popularity is probably rooted in the kind of profound consistency over time that it proves itself to be. The problem with that is there's a, this initial excitement, this interest and a desire to learn more, but because it's a sophisticated system, it's really difficult to actually use the tool without either a very deep commitment to, you know, to learning it and studying it and memorizing it and developing a strong working knowledge or you need someone to help you who's an expert. And a lot of times the experts might be really well-versed in the information in the system itself, but are less masterful at helping people to type themselves. So you have many points of failure. <laughs> it, it, it's not a user-friendly tool. So let's just say that at all. And so it's worth it, like most powerful tools, it requires more skill because they can <laughs> you know, it can be misused very easily. And then the misuse, you know, could cause problems and can be potentially dangerous. But it's still, I think people sense and intuitively understand the kind of depth. And I think that on some level too, Chelsea, you know, humans more and more are craving depth. You know, I really feel like our current society is pretty saccharine filled. And I use the word saccharine because it's, it's like fake sugar. So it's not even sugar. Like I take it to the next level. It's like fake sugar. Like, <laughs> 
where it's, you know, we are substituting everything and we miss some deep nutrition in our diet. And so I do think that humans are craving in, you know, and just to use that metaphor, I think it's pretty accurate, like how we do crave certain foods when we are deficient. And I think that this might be a similar example, you know, where we're craving depth and we're craving something that is more comprehensive because we intuitively know that we're reducing things or that our current tools or our current standards are not actually working. Yep. To that exact point, the purpose of the Enneagram is opposite from what many other tools are used for. So instead of reducing the complexity of human relationships, into something understandable. It's easy for people to work with. The Enneagram is working to map the movement of human development and human disintegration, which we've already talked a little bit about. That's far more complex ambition. And so it's designed as transformational, meaning that we have all nine types as well as our core default type. What I think is the most important is that the Enneagram is mapping the movement of humans under stress and flourishing. We move around a lot. It's not actually uh, planting us in any one spot. It's not fixed. It's a dynamic tool that is fluid. And the purpose of it is to map that movement. And I think what happens with the other tools is it's more fixed and it's, it's trying to pinpoint in a very specific way where you are, right? And I think the Enneagram, of course, can do that in a, in a moment, but it's more about, well, what changes and why do those things change? And the goal is to be integrated into all other types. So the place to start that process is by knowing our core type, but it's only the beginning. The Enneagram begins where most other frameworks end. So it's more complex and comprehensive because parts of our humanity are included. And without being more conscious or and aware of what's running us, it's difficult to grow because we can't locate why we're doing what we're doing. The forefathers and foremothers of, of the tool, it was actually trying to really dig into transformation. Like, how do we become, how do we transform into more of a whole, complete human? And what does it even mean to be a whole, complete human, right? So that is distinctive, and it's an ongoing kind of infinite work. And uh, so, yeah, you know, that is the ultimate goal is to become the best of all nine types. And that is almost impossible, but it is a, it is a worthy exercise. And I hope to get into that as we create this podcast really is about like, what does that mean to find the different types in us rather than be overly fixed inside only one type? So that is super important. Yeah. And uncovering the why, not the what. And so in terms of becoming, it it changes the goal. And so other tools are focused on the what and the things about an individual. Of course, they bring behavior into that a lot. The Enneagram is more interested in the why. And what's interesting about it from my perspective is that all nine types can behave identically, but there's nine different motivators for the same exact actions, which also starts to get into how it's so easy to mistype people. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly why I say that because so many people say, well, they're doing this or, you know, they're doing this a lot. Are they, and it's like, look, humans are far too (laughs) complex of creatures to like, you know, pick a few behaviors and lob it into a category. You know, we share 
so much. <laughs> and so it is a nuanced tool of what's underneath it and why. And it's the combination of variables that kind of make up why. And, and that's, you know, more, more tricky to look at which is why it's accurate, right? So it's like you, I think that this is the thing that kind of frustrates both of us is that when people want the insights without the the work, and it's like, you got to do the work in order to really get to the insights and in, in any accurate way. Yeah, and it requires a lot of discipline and it's frequently misused. We joke a lot about, about gift guides or Halloween costumes and it's all fun, but some of the misuses are this kind of overcommitment or undercommitment. So we misuse it when we oversimplify it, when we bring our arrogance to it, when we try to justify our behavior using it, when we villainize, you know, either people's behaviors or who they are as a result. This is such an important piece to me, which is why I, I mean, it always is nice when you're recapping what I said, because it's so critical to me that any system or tool has to be used to benefit humanity, not to hurt humanity. And we just can't help it as humans. You know what I mean? Which is very difficult to hit the mark, which is, by the way, there's plenty of compassion for, right? Like I, as an eight, am usually way overdoing it a lot of the time. And hitting the mark is really difficult when you have so much energy. It requires a lot of discipline to, to manage that kind of intensity. So there's compassion there. However, it's, it's really important to not be disconnected from our nature to be extreme, to either over or under. <laughs> and so it's just, it's so, so important. And I think most people will identify one or the other, right? It's like, oh my gosh, this is just a word, you know, people are worshiping this tool and think the Enneagram is everything, you know, or people probably less, you know, notice how it's misused. And the truth is it's both. And I don't agree with either. Like worshiping it or weaponizing it are both incredibly dangerous and bad and not, not helpful to humanity. And we need to be really, really aware of how that's happening and how we might be individually contributing to that bad activity. Absolutely. If you're listening to or reading something about the Enneagram and you're not absolutely inspired by that type and you wish you were that type because of its brilliance, then it's missing the mark in terms of communicating what each type is designed to do in terms of what it brings to the world and what it teaches us. We also learn from it how we misuse our strengths, which is when we become destructive. Yeah, it's our greatest power. Misused is the worst vice. A key thing here is it's important in certain instances to summarize things. It's, it's difficult to, you know, hit all of the details in every conversation. And, you know, we, we need to gesture occasionally so that there's a common working knowledge of, of what we mean. When we do this, when we summarize and when we gesture, we need to be very careful to pick the parts of each type that are actually at their best, what they're designed to do. And we don't do this. You know, usually what people do is they just pick the parts that they remember, <laughs> you know, about each type, which tend to be just super based in behaviors. It's not well considered. And so what I am adamant about is that when you're trying to summarize a type, we need to be speaking about the type at its ideal and its core kind of design, what, it, what we were built to do at our best. And then in a particular investigation, we can work from there. But it's really 
it's not useful or helpful to just randomly pick the certain things that you remember about each type when much of the time it's negative. And so it doesn't do justice to the type as it exists in its, its best form. Uh, stereotypes of each type. And it was like, oh, nines love to take naps and ones are always on time. And there are all these nines and ones and it, it was across every single type going, that's not true. That's not me. You know, it's like, you can't boil something this powerful no. and this complex down. No, there are all of those. Like I have so many people who are giving me their, they bring to me their evidence of what they think is a type. So they think that this person is this type. And then I'll ask for what is their evidence? What do they think it is? And they're just listing these things. That it's like, oh my gosh, any type could be that. Every type can be type A or ambitious or whatever. That's not a particular one thing. And as a matter of fact, I know many ones who are chronically late. Again, it's not the behavior, it's what's driving it. And underneath, you know, that if, if one is late, they might be punishing themselves more for it. But that would be something invisible that it wouldn't be demonstrated externally. So there isn't actually any visible evidence of what that type is actually, which is actually you, happening. Which is why you really can't or shouldn't go around typing people because the inner world is what's driving all of this. So, and the Enneagram exists within a matrix of variables, right? That are highly interdependent. And as soon as you extract one thing, then you lose all the context of the whole design, which is how we move, that we're not fixed and what makes us move. And are we operating from our type? Are we moving to another type? It's so complex. You're picking out, Chelsea, some of the most critical things. And, and I love that about you. It's why we're, we're such good partners. This is something that's pretty critical is that people in their enthusiasm and desire to work with a tool, they will forget. And by the way, we are forgetting creatures and it's, and it's difficult to hold a bunch of information all at the same time in one place when that's not our primary place of mastery, you know, in terms of like our education or whatever. But it is something that's really important to remember is that it is this, you know, matrix that are interdependent variables. And when you take one, you can investigate that one. But you have to remember that outside of the context of the whole, you know, we start losing accuracy. And so that's just a thing. If you're gonna, if you want to really get to know the Enneagram and work with it, this is the kind of quality of investigation that's necessary. The whole has to be considered far more in the complexity, all of it versus a particular part. And in all the work we've done related to leadership development, building powerful strategies, leveraging decision intelligence, every single one of our conversations has dove into the complexity of the Enneagram from within the context of a very specific situation and circumstances with all of those details present. And bringing together each one of those data points is what ultimately allows the lens of the Enneagram to start working and the outcome of the strategy to be successful because it's taking everything into account. Yeah. Well said. I've heard from you a consistent thing that you hear from people is that out of all the personality types, and they even mention, including my therapist, that they have gotten way more insights, awareness. And then I love this part, the eureka moments, because I've experienced that from the Enneagram. All of the things that we've just spoken about kind of add up to a profound experience because it's particularly useful. 
you have other tools that kind of reveal the what, which is who you are. And most of the time, we already know the what to a pretty extensive degree, but it feels good when there's a tool that can uh, validate that what that we already know, right? That's nice. But I think that when you really see somebody's why kind of at a deeper level, it's a different kind of experience of being seen and finding our place in the world, like knowing and kind of being connected to a kind of existential job. And so again, it's not something to be worshiped. We don't need to turn this into like some, you know, over-spiritualized woo-woo thing. It's just another tool, guys, you know, that is useful to us. Yeah. And it's not meant to simplify. It's more of a map of the landscape. I really love thinking about it, not as a map of roads even to get from point A to point B, but really just a map for the sake of the map to be able to look at the whole landscape, 3D even, right? The dimensionality of the human condition. And then so many leadership development tools or people development tools are really prescriptive. So they have a starting and an end place. It's like, how do you get from point A to point B? And the, the tools can be a really good starting place, right? Like maybe you're just getting going on your journey and a couple of those prescriptive areas can be helpful, but only engaging in these prescriptive tools and this prescriptive thinking too, that the culture yeah, is like, there's one, one right way to do things or one right way to think. It limits our growth and it limits our expansiveness because humans live in an incredibly contextualized, nuanced world. It's like, how many times can we make this point, right? Yeah, well, I'm not, I I feel like I'll just make it at nauseum because I think that we just are so conditioned to the contrary. And I use the word landscape intentionally because for me, that is a really accurate metaphor. And I use a few of operating system, you know, kind of maps against our technological world. The ancients did not use that word. <laughs> you know, landscape is something that feels more expansive. And, and especially when we're kind of journeyers, you know, in this land. And it kind of accounts for all the things that we experience in um, a terrain, right? And the liminality, the spaces in between, the movements, the places where we get lost, the places where we experience being found. Like, I don't know, it's a very, it, I love that that metaphor. The landscape actually brings con- context. So if in our mind, we can think about landscape and put ourselves, you know, on the globe, and then we can understand like how finite we are, you know, in the context of the globe. I think that actually helps us build more accurate context. It is expansive and we are able to zoom in and we are able to, in the moments, create a plan or a prescription for that moment to help us through. But the issue that I'm trying to tackle is that doesn't mean that exact plan is going to necessarily work every time in every circumstance. There are a few. I mean, because particularly in our stress responses are so predictable, which is actually quite wonderful that they're predictable because a lot of our strategies inside stress response actually are, we're able to use them over and over pretty effectively and pretty successfully. But for the most part, it's going to (laughs) change. And I think that's a part of resiliency is being able to adapt to whatever particular circumstances coming up, which does require more work. It requires a different kind of strength and skills, but that's what gives us more and more freedom. And that is the path for growth. I think we have a healthy respect for the tool. And it's because of this next point that in your experience, eight out of 10 people mistype themselves and nine out of 10 people mistype others. I mean, 
you hear about people who are super enthusiastic or who have just been exposed to the tool and just how it so quickly goes, I don't know, wrong. I mean, to lack of a better word, but it's like, oh man. And it's just, I just can't say it enough. Like the test is not accurate at best. It's like 50% accurate. And it just, it's not possible to be that accurate for all of the reasons that we, you know, keep saying over and over and we'll continue to say over and over, you know what I mean? There's better places to, to start for, for thinking through your potential type. The truths of the Enneagram and where our core type actually is found are in the deeper layers of ourselves that we're not connected with or entirely conscious of. So it is difficult to type ourselves and it's even more difficult to type others or maybe equally difficult depending on how well we know ourselves, right? Or how well we know others. It really requires somebody who can lead and express the nuances in the differences. So it's not that people are not capable, they certainly are, but it's the presentation of information that helps people really understand and, and know how and what to look for when they're examining what type they might be. So uh, the Enneagram assumes that we are born our type and it does not change. And also that nurture plays a wild role ultimately in how healthy we are. And so it's both nature and nurture. However, it's a transformation tool. So what's really cool is that what type you are becomes less and less important over time because the goal is not to stay fixed in your type. It's to become the best every type. So whatever type we're born with becomes, again, less important over time. It is nature and nurture. You know, it's like there's, we don't need to be so authoritative on this. Like certain things we don't entirely 100% know, but we do have a pr pretty confident, you know, over 2000 years and, and several studies, enough studies being done, particularly on twins that, yeah, you, we don't change types. We we're born with a type and it is the same forever. However, it kind of like, just like we just said, it doesn't really matter the, the more that we're invested in our growth because that core type will become less of a fixture and more of um, the spectrum of, of a part of the spectrum of who, who we are. So if the goal is to really become a complete, well-developed, you know, whole human, then we're really trying to activate all nine types and develop into to all of them. And so the what came first matters less and less. In thinking about folks' journey and our own journeys, at the beginning, oftentimes uncovering your core type is a huge, huge tool for self-awareness. When you talk about those inner layers and it may even be hidden from self. And it also becomes a point of validation like, all of a sudden the whole world makes so much more sense through this understanding of what those core motivators, the core drivers have been. And it can also become a natural justification to our ways. That's both the positive and the negative. Yes. Great elements like, oh, wow, like this is the unique gifts and talents I bring to the world. And then again, when those are overused or used in a destructive way, the damage is significant. The misuse of that can become a way to justify being lodged in our core type in some of the less healthy ways. I just love that word of lodged in our core type because it paints such a great picture of the goal is not to find your type and stay there, right? Like saying it once again, that it's a tool for transformation. 
Yeah, a perfect example of this is, you know, eights. Eights are often a great example because we're so intensely extreme <laughs> that it becomes like a, you know, an easy example. And I often describe eights as like the defibrillator, which came from my teachers. It's not my original idea, but, you know, the tool that you use to bring people back to life, you know, the electricity that you put in, <laughs> that you put on somebody to jolt them back in, into life, which is, you know, almost an impossible thing. This is what eights are gifted with this ability. Um, however, when we're defibrillating people who are not dying, <laughs> this can cause death, which is, this is the kind of be beauty in the paradox here, right? Like the very thing that is designed to save lives can also become the things that kills and takes life away. And so that is the the very nice and extreme example of, of how AIDS misuse. Yeah, the Enneagram is about returning to the deep practice of recognizing and understanding that we're all nine types and the goal is to be integrated and connected to all of them. And when we do that from a place of our default operating type, it looks different from each type. And so this also points to the problem with any kind of programmatic learning that aims at solving human growth and development because we lose a lot of the nuance and context of the individual experience when we aim to put kind of a one-size-fits-all program in place. Well, it's important to meet people where they're at. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. Like, you know, you think of all animals, you know, in their, when they're in their growth and development cycle, they're taking risks and making mistakes. And it's very contextual and it's very specific. And the most powerful ways that we learn is inside a very specific and personal experience. It's how we remember. And so it's too much to oftentimes to create a program where people have to memorize. I mean, how do they actually use and hold all that information? It's, it's very difficult. So there's a place for programs. We've talked about this, like, again, usually there are places to start. It's places to create a baseline of information and knowledge to make it easier and, and, and a little bit more um, linear. But then as we move on, you know, it's really about digging into specific examples and to, to locate our personal patterns. And this, it requires more investigative work. It requires, you know, I think a little bit more intelligence as well. It's kind of easier to stay at the programmatic level. Um, where things are outlined and depicted in a very general terms, but you know, our existences are mostly not general, you know, it's like everybody has their own experiences and, um, and addressing those experiences, I think are absolutely the best way to learn both. And even though they may not be quick, they're sustainable and they kind of end up being more integrated, just more integrated into who we are. And that's the point. The point isn't to perform our understanding and knowledge, the, the point is to become. And performance can be a part of that process, but the experiencing that we're going for is the experience of becoming. We know that people learn from those individual personalized experiences, both the experiences they have internally as well as externally. And locating and working with those requires a lot of mastery. So how we approach it requires far more sensitivity and like you said, this holistic intelligence than any program can provide. So like you said, programs can provide a baseline to begin from, but when we only do those things, which don't focus on really where the individual is getting stuck, our learning is so much slower at best and entirely ineffective at worst. 
understanding of the internal experience and the external experience. And obviously they're married and, <laughs> and absolutely one affects the other, but it does make it easier for humans to collapse the two. And so it's, it's useful to actually be able to identify what is the kind of happening internally, what's happening ex externally, and then figure out how they're affecting one another. Like what is the, what is the relationship versus kind of like saying, oh, it's all the same thing. There's more variables. <laughs> there's, there's more things going on than what we're just pointing to. And so that might be a good example too, of how it is uh, important to parse and to kind of separate things in order to understand originally like, hey, what is happening just specifically here? But then we have to reintegrate. So I think most of the time humans are just collapsing everything and reducing something to just one thing. We're overly compartmentalizing. It, this invitation that we need to be able to do both. We need to be able to parse everything out and see things in a singular form in order to really understand and have a good working knowledge. But then we have to reintegrate because they actually exist in the whole. And they remain functional in the whole, not in, in the parts. The Enneagram closes the gap between personal and professional development. Because I think about personal development being that inner experience. And I think about professional development, like how do you lead at work or something? And the reality is they are not separate things. Everything, who we are and who we have become or have yet to become shows up in our experiences, both at home and at work. And all of the things that we need to be effective leaders come from that deep part of us within. Yeah, this is another thing. I mean, I'll just say this too, because I think that this is a huge way that our current systems go wrong. And it's, it's when we compartmentalize <laughs> the human or, or fraction out the human to, to where we start believing that our professional life is different and separate than our personal life, as you just said. So that is, is one thing where we're kind of forcing humans to become and to contort themselves um, in ways that are not very effective or healthy for them to do. Um, we also simultaneously will overly merge. So an example of this would be like when companies decide that we all need to be family. <laughs> And I, you know, that we're a family here and this is where you're overly merging. Like work isn't family and many, many people don't want to be family with, you know, 50 to thousands of individuals and, and the commitments are different and how we actually show up is different. So it, it's this, again, this kind of dual problem on both of the extremes. It's like we are whole humans that need to be able to enter all of our spaces as fully human and not fractionalized and compartmentalized. But that doesn't mean that we're merging everything into the exact, to mean the exact same thing. It's a difficult balance to hit, you know, allowing people to be fully hu human and people when there's the constructs and constraints of a business and then trying to solve for that in ways that are absolutely unhealthy and they don't really work either. I mean, all the things work for a time, I suppose. The, the, all of the, all of the things we've seen, Chelsea, and particularly, we can we can locate that in sales teams. There's different kinds of manipulation that definitely work for a short time, but ultimately, you know, we're talking about sustainability. They don't work. Yeah, and the conditioning, right? So the Enneagram is countercultural in a lot of ways because it pushes back on the social conditioning that teaches us to look for tips and tricks 
And our culture is really impatient. We love speed. We love convenience. We seek comfort. And the Enneagram, like most tools and activities for growth, are not quick. And so its comprehensiveness cannot be reduced into a tip or a trick. Yeah. And one thing that I can add to this is that over time, enough experience and understanding, things do become more speedy. <laughs> there is a speed and quickness, but that's not usually until after we develop strength at a certain level of mastery with the information. I think that's the disparity here. It's like, if you want speed, again, you have to work for it. So you have to develop and get good enough at it in order to, to actually have the speed. Until you're good enough and until you've actually put the work and the time in, then yeah, no, the tips and tricks are not going to work well. This is the long game. So what the Enneagram offers in its totality is far more comprehensive and nuanced, that word again. So it requires more energy and attention to engage with it. But it also provides less certainty and a lot more clarity. We talked a little bit earlier about the predictability that it gives us, which is a flavor of certainty is the way you phrased it, which was really nice. And so when we're not very well adjusted, the outcomes of our dysfunction can become very, very predictable. But the more adjusted we are, the less predictable we become, which is interesting. So that means it's less certain, but it's less certain in a really good way because the possibilities increase and our expansiveness to take on and integrate into these other types increases. Yeah, well, nuance is one of my favorite words. I have many, <laughs> but it just points to the hidden things, yeah. right? The things that are less visible and that are um, more contextual and that are more difficult to see. And, and then the relations are a little bit more sophisticated. And then this idea that we, um, are predictable, we're both predictable and unpredictable at the same time, you know, which is true. I'll just say this again, that the more well-developed we become, the more integrated we become, the less predictable we are. And that is a good thing because it's, it's less predictable in the good ways. It means that we are actually able to meet the moment with more accuracy and ease. And rather than being driven solely by our code, you know, and our operating system, which is pretty finite and limited and, and more one-dimensional. So the more integrated we are into all nine types, we have access to all of that brilliance, which in, gives us all the, the internal resources to meet the moment with more mastery. When we're in stress, it's very predictable what each type will do. And our stress responses are incredibly predictable and, and that is useful. And I love actually that's like, at least it would, at least if we're going to have bad and negative, you know, at least we can predict it so that we can, you know, create strategies and responses and a preparedness <laughs> and in a way that we can more easily self-correct. Yeah. We also have talked a lot about resiliency and kind of getting away from how some corporations leverage resiliency in their core values, but more so in terms of how resilience is directly tied to a quality of life. And we talked a little bit about pain and suffering earlier. Our level of pain and discomfort is typically tied to our level of development. And growing pains are one thing, the analogy being in the gym, you know, with resistance to build strength. Um, and that's a good type of pain. It's the growing pain. But the other type of pain is from dysfunction and resiliency in the way that you define it is being able to identify which type of pain we're experiencing and then how quickly we're able to self-correct as a result, which requires 
an entirely different type of intelligence of ourselves, of the circumstances that we're in, and of others. So instead of solving our anxiety to get back to that sense of comfort, as much as it may be a false sense of comfort and in many ways, which is ultimately the opposite of resilience, just trying to get back to homeostasis without knowing its root, like where is this pain, what's the source of it, but we can use the Enneagram to develop the skills needed to identify which type of pain it is, what the source is, and then how we can self-correct. Exactly. I think we'll end up talking a lot more about resiliency and anxiety since it's a pretty big thread throughout human existence. Yeah. We also yeah. talk a lot about disruption and risk. I think those mm -hmm. are a couple of our favorite areas. Yeah. I know they're my favorite areas and some of your core tenants. And the Enneagram, I love this, could, can help us evaluate where we can take intelligent risks. So not risk for the sake of risk. And also think about intelligent risk in terms of the competency to see and locate the source of our resistance, which is complex, right? Because there's so many variables, factors, all within this matrix. And those factors include things like circumstances, but also our fears, unhealthy fears, realistic fears, and then internal and external risks. It's so complex, but we can look for courage with taking those internal risks. And then also think about the strategies we implore of where to push, where to test, and where to discover within the context of taking external risks. That was another great summary. Yeah, I mean, like the advice is not to just go start taking risks and be brash, but I hope right. it gives people a sense of getting to less of the, the big picture and understanding how the Enneagram plus decision intelligence forms strategies that become very, very practical, very tactical, very felt, very, very pinpointed and tailored because when you take the time to understand the nuance, ask the questions, gain the context, think about the individual, you, in your mastery, the majority of your approach in our conversations is asking a lot of questions first to understand what could be happening. And then we get to the strategy. And so we slow down to speed up and we look at the whole picture all of the parts and all of the individual little pieces. And then you can paint this kind of broad, holistic picture that, that helps build a strategy that, gosh, they're so effective. Yeah, it actually is deeply satisfying. I mean, the part to this too is about learning to be a better and better partner in our own growth, right? So for me, much of my work is really partnering with people, not, you know, in, in together, in the discovery process and together we form strategies and together we figure out ways to, to leverage different kinds of intelligence, right? So that's a partnership. And then for ourselves individually, it's if the more we understand ourselves, we can really understand more clearly what our limitations are and what our strengths are and then create plans for that. Like I have, I mean, you know, this just, you've watched me do it. I have all kinds of limitations and I go to people to help me you know, to fill in the gaps of my own limitations. Well, that ends up being, you know, really strategic. And then I can also offer myself as a solution based on my strengths. And if, if we're doing this for each other, this becomes really powerful partnership that is deeply satisfying because we're compounding our investment 
in our own and in each other's strengths. And through that process, we're all also learning. We're learning how to, you know, be less limited and be less stopped, you know, by whatever limitations that we have because we have each other's help. And through, because we have each other's help, we're naturally learning what other people are able to do really well and we're not, we're learning. And that's part of what I speak to when I say becoming the best of, of all nine types. The more we're actually, and this is the strategy that I have, I have, I understand, you know, people so well that when I'm in a position, I will think, well, what would a six do in this situation? What is what, and, and in that, eventually it's what would the six in me do, right? Or the two or the four or whatever, those end up being actual literal people in our life. And then also that the source that we internally hold for ourselves. And so this is what's kind of exciting about the process is that it becomes deeply satisfying when we can be better partners in our own growth. Yeah. There are also so many paradoxes because the deepest truths live within paradoxes so many times. And so when we're, we talked about speed earlier, when we're after speed, we tend to skip things and we inadvertently cause problems, or create problems, or it might be a short-term fix that has way bigger negative ramifications down the line. And we typically miss the mark, like the majority of the time when we're just trying to execute from the goal and the value of speed, it causes us to inaccurately create and execute a strategy. So we miss, right? But what happens as a result of thinking differently and taking a more expansive approach, which is everything we've been talking about, is that you discover more quickly, you adjust more quickly, and you end up getting to your result <laughs> more quickly. And so the goal here is to use the tools we have to intelligently become. And when we become something different, and when becoming is the goal, not speed, we unlock what we're really after. So that's the paradox. Yeah. I mean, this is another deep soul point <laughs> that I that make. And, it is, and there's certain things that you, when you restate them, it, it, it hits me even freshly because this is such an important thing. One, paradox is a form of poetry. <laughs> so, and I really believe that poetry teaches us so many things and we can find it everywhere. And so paradox is a, is a form of poetry where poetry kind of inverts the way that we see things, the way that we expect things to, to occur. And um, there's this quality of being unsettled and a willingness to be unsettled, uh, a willingness to see paradox. They're, they're the places that are have the highest amounts of treasure because they're very difficult <laughs> to see. And it's kind of the payoff of, of poetry and paradox. And, and we kind of, we are, we, we are living art. <laughs> you know, we are living creatures of poetry. We just tend to resist that or not see that. And and so this kind of space of really, really seeking to, to see the, the paradox and, and, and one of the examples that I speak of that you just said was that instead of actually having a particular aim, some, maybe most of the things that we really want are the results of being and that we can't, meaning like the results of, of having character, having a kind of this holistic understanding of oneself and 
having a particular virtue, whatever that is, that, that if we're engaging a quality of being, we end up receiving some of the specific things that we're actually wanting. And so this is, um, it's an important thing to be reminded of as a human because we often think, oh, I want this or I want this, or we see this as a solution. But by going after that particular thing, we actually lose contact with what that thing is. <laughs> I mean, this is, you know, ancient, you know, wisdom, right? Like this is kind of the Buddhist perspective. I mean, this is not like new information, but I think that the Enneagram kind of reveals this reality in our operating system. And I end up speaking about it a lot and locating it a lot, like what the paradoxes are and how powerful they can be when we engage it, yeah. meaning engage the paradoxes. Yeah. And so when we think, you know, people are excited and they want to start learning about it. When it comes to learning about the Enneagram, there's an analogy you used that was swimming. If you want to learn how to swim, you don't just read a book and then jump into the pool by yourself because <laughs> complex movements, you need training and you need a partner coach, right? Lifeguard. And so like something potentially dangerous, like swimming, our humanity is really delicate. You know, you talked about us being fragile and the ecosystem of the Enneagram, like a swimming pool filled with water is unfamiliar territories, this uncharted landscape, right? And so when most people get started, they can't fathom the complexity that they're about to dive into. And that can set people up to enter a danger zone without a lifeguard keeping an eye out for them. Yeah. Or somebody there <laughs> helping them actually physically swim. Um, you know, so yeah, it's more than just being watched. It's actually helping the swim. And I love how you actually... Um, summarize that too, Chelsea, I think that's well done. It's just something that we very easily lose contact with, like how foreign certain kinds of movements are or ways of thinking are or whatever it is. And, and to go at it alone or to just kind of assume that we can read a book and figure it out doesn't work. So, and, 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 and this kind of goes back to the same thing of mistyping, right? Like exactly an example, you know, that is, um, a literal example is how often people mistype themselves and mistype others. It's, you, you can't read a book or take a test. It's, it generally doesn't work that way. Not that you, not that it's impossible. It, it certainly is possible to, to locate your type and to, and to have that accuracy. It's just usually difficult <laughs> and you, and we usually need help. And it's a huge commitment, right? And it takes years to acquire a working knowledge, which requires, you know, commitment and discipline. So if you're not that committed to it, you're not going to get a whole lot out of it. Like maybe on Instagram, you'll be able to pick your donut type based on your operating type. <laughs> I didn't even make that up. Um, but you can also do a lot of damage, you know, unintentionally with how you're unconsciously using it even, or supporting yeah. bad behavior or judging others. It can really be destructive until you understand it. So you have the under commitment, and then you can also have the over commitment where it's not the end all be all. All of a sudden, if everything that you see in the world is now framed through the Enneagram and it's this kind of worship state, the point is it's important to have a healthy relationship with it. So you have the discipline to learn it, and then the discipline to not only see the world through the Enneagram. Perfect. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so we also encourage people who are interested in learning more with a starting place, that place to start looking at core drivers. And those are our core motivations. 
and our core fears. And in this context, core motivations aren't our goals. It isn't like climb the ladder, earn the money, spend more time with my family. It's none of that. They're the deepest part of ourselves that again, exist from birth, right? Like as our hardwired, like coding. And so they're often unconscious, yet they're driving us in ways we may not be entirely aware of. And so core drives and core fears answer the why. Again, not behaviors, but the underlying motivation for what's driving those behaviors. Yeah, and that we can break down in, you know, in the future of like, what are the nine core drives, motivations, and core fears? Those are the things that are most essential to each type. Yeah, we've talked about how each type can exhibit the same behavior, but they're doing it for different reasons. And most of those reasons are unconscious until you do have an opportunity to locate your operating type. And then this Greco moment is all of a sudden the Enneagram reveals that why and helps us see the essential thread underneath everything that we do because it's motivating every behavior. Yeah. And that's something that is, oh man, you know, I just keep thinking of like my journey and how those core motivations and drives are, are hidden (laughs) and, and how others can perceive you in a certain way. Like I have had many people, Enneagram people think that I'm a three because I show up like a three, which is a huge compliment being an eight. Actually, it's like, okay, I'm doing something right here. Like I'm really growing because that is not, that is not what eights typically do or, or, or care to do. But then there's also people who've seen me as a two, because when I get in certain situations, because I was raised by a two, my mother isn't a two. And those val- and because I actually integrate to a two where I will start serving everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, being, you know, very nurturing and attentive and anticipating people's needs. And, you know, so one, I have that in me myself as an integration point, And then also my mother very much. Trained. So when I'm in social situations, I often escape to my two self because I'm actually not that interested mm-hmm. in people mm-hmm. unless they're right in front of me. You know, and then the person that's in front of me, I can make contact with and I appreciate. But in terms of the whole, I'm just not even interested. And so it's awesome, you know, in the sense that I was raised by a two, I will just hide in being busy. Then I can kind of leave whenever I want. I can get this over with. But as a result, that behavior and such a consistent behavior and skill, by the way, I'll add, like I'm actually fairly good at it, you know, again, for the two reasons. <laughs> One, I can integrate there too. I was trained very well by a two. So it's people have, ident- oh, she's totally to like okay well yeah <laughs> great okay good you've identified some two behaviors and and actually the quality of which i'm executing i can pat myself on the back for that because that's a really, really nice quality um but you're not really seeing my the core motivations and why i'm doing it like a two doing that you know we and this is the thing we can our twos can also hide we all hide behind our strengths right but it's less conscious like for me as an eight, I'm consciously hiding. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you know, and in, in, in doing my thing. And maybe sometimes I'm I'm less conscious, but that's just a tool that I have because of how I was raised and whatever behaviors that we can be conditioned to learn. And by the way, many women are conditioned in two ways because twos are the ultimate nurturers and, you know, women are conditioned to be the nurturers in the world. So unpacking all this is really interesting, but requires some help and support, which is what we're 
kind of yeah. all going back to, and then the eureka moments, which is kind of what you were saying is that when you can really locate with some precision, what's at the core kind of, you know, inspiring the, the, the why you're doing what you do and you land on that, it feels absolutely right. But it's difficult um, to, and it's also difficult by the Enneagram community, people who actually don't have the expertise arguing with you. You know, and, and in my say, people who actually do have the expertise who, who are getting it wrong and, and partly why that happens because everybody's getting it wrong such a high percentage of time of the time. Right. So this is what's just happening in kind of a rampant way. So then we're kind of put in a position to defend ourselves or whatever. And that becomes a whole other problem. You know, this is, I think, what you and I are trying to address. A, a lot of what we're trying to address, Chelsea, is if you actually are interested in the Enneagram and this is something that you really think is amazing, okay, this is not an easy thing, <laughs> you know, not a pickup sport, you know, so are you sure you really want to learn? Because <laughs> it's a lot of work. And then there's a promise too. Like, I mean, from my experience and, and knowing other people you've worked with too, like life transforming and everything that I know about how to lead, I mean, how to show up at work, like that all came from a shift in thinking and a growth towards becoming that is really hard to measure by so many of today's KPIs and standards. Well, then that would be something that I would love to put like a huge point on is that our measurements, the way that we have standardized and demand uh, measurements is not helpful and often destructive in terms of human growth. So I, I'm not I'm not here to say, oh, fuck measurements and everything's bad and let's throw everything out. But I am here saying that when we're overly committed to data and measurements and anything tangible in a way that actually is destructive to um, the, the reality of what's invisible and immeasurable and in particularly in human systems. And that actually is a huge part of what uh, deteriorates and obstructs growing our human intelligence is a lot of these measurements and how the majority of us who've ever been having put underneath them know that one, they're used against us to manipulate. And then two, we can also manipulate. <laughs> and so like at the end of the day, when everyone knows this, and then it just ends up being, you know, the smart, you know, if you're really smart, you can manipulate it back, you know, and also if you're not smart and you're frustrated and you know that companies are using them to manipulate you when at the end of the day, I mean, this is a whole human capital discussion we can have later, Chelsea, before I start going down that rabbit hole. Leave people with a starting place, which is first and foremost, do not take the test. Uh, we love our tests and our culture, especially a personality test, right? And the problem is the Enneagram, if you haven't noticed by now, based on this conversation, is super complex. It's super sophisticated and therefore it is not possible for a test to be super accurate. And this is self-proclaimed by the test, which will help to locate a top three to give you a place to begin your discovery, but not be like 100% this is you because it's such a nuanced system. So your recommendation is to read through each of the nine types to get like a high level overview and then to work to locate yourself by looking at the core driver or that motivation, that deep inner motivation, the core fears and the core brilliances, which we haven't talked a ton about. The core brilliances are the things which are at your best when you're exceptionally phenomenal. 
in my practice, I start with the core brilliances as the summary for each type and really dig in to the things that are so otherworldly when each type is truly integrated and in hitting the mark. But not a lot of books really get into that language around that in terms of what each type is at their best. And that is the space of these core brilliances, what we can do that no other type can do as well and as powerfully. So that's something that doesn't have a lot of investment, I don't think. I think we need a lot more. And I just do not have the patience to write a book <laughs> on all of the brilliances, but I love, I can speak to it and I actually like articulating it. And I do think that the, the passion, which I articulate it is very fulfilling to me because again, this is my space that I love. Like I love the human possibility in terms of the power that we actually have been given that's accessible to us. So yeah, this is a big area that's left out. And also I don't really know very many resources that dig into the, the, the brilliances in similar ways that I do. So I'll have to keep a lookout for that. Or if any of you know people who are listening know of a resource where that's really an, an inspiring summary of each type at their best, like I'd be interested. Since we are going through all nine types or anything like that in this conversation, could you choose a type and tell us about their core brilliance to give us a sense of what you mean by that? Sure. Well, let's start with your type, Chelsea. <laughs> I love flattery. <laughs> um, type twos. And, what, and the reason why I actually want to pick this one out is because I think there's some operating systems that are more misunderstood than others. I mean, you know, humans were all misunderstood at some level, you know, um, because we just can't see each other so clearly. But twos at their best are really the lovers and the nurturers of the soul in ways that are actually experienced in like kind of divine in, in a way that they're, they're the most gifted healers and those who can understand the emotional states of others and can cue in to other people's pain in a way that most humans can't do. So the two have a, has a deep capacity for compassion and can sit with other people's pain and not be destroyed. <laughs> and most humans are really not good at, at anything that has any kind of pain involved. And I'm talking about both physical and emotional pain, right? And so twos are able to enter the relational space and in the soul space. I mean, I would say the lover of the soul because I feel like the soul encapsulates everything about the human being. <laughs> and, um, and twos are able to invest in humans and in a way that is healing, like really doesn't exist in, in any other type. And what that looks like is being able to be, of course, located in the heart and the kind of intelligence that comes from the heart, which is an ability to feel and sense, like I said, the emotional states of others and the relational states of others and how to navigate that with a, with a precision. And I would say almost, um, again, some kind of supernatural intuition I have words for it, but I don't want to like use those words because I don't, I don't know if they would be off-putting to some twos, but it's definitely otherworldly in terms of the accuracy of the emotional intelligence that's available to twos at their best that feels like magic. Maybe that's a word that would work for everyone. 
in the sense of there's some kind of draw from some other place that, that ends up being so all encompassing and nurturing where, where twos are able to authentically and honestly love and have the most compassion and probable, like, I'm not sure I believe in unconditional love, <laughs> but if it does exist, I, a two would be able to show me <laughs> and prove to me that this does exist. You know, what that capacity means in terms of humanity is vast. Like each, each person at their brilliance, right, is, is, is really vast. There is an ability that twos have to invest relationally in ways that most of us aren't actually noticing or seeing. And of course, these go wrong, right? Because most humans are not perfect and it can be misused and all the things. But at their best, twos actually teach us what love is. And love is something that we don't even understand that any one human can even have a good definition of love. <laughs> but in terms of on an intuitive level of what we can, we can imagine the expansiveness of what love might be, twos are the ones to teach us what that is and how that ultimately can heal and repair and transform and, and I would say that there's an area here of the twos that, that actually has a quality of in being able to engage resurrection because it's the ultimate kind of healing space. And which is odd here because you say twos go to eight, right? Remember how I said, you know, earlier that eights are often just, just you know, has a, just are described as the defibrillators, which can bring the dead back to life, which is also a form of resurrection. And so I think that maybe eights can tap into this particular kind that's external and maybe physical and a jolt and is just what's necessary for that moment to bring them back to life. But twos are able to engage it in the, in the soul level that's far more spiritual, I would say, that is actually true resurrection. And again, it, it comes from this place of healing and repair and nurturing. And there's nothing more powerful or life-giving in this sense of, of real love. So, and how this is misunderstood, you know, Jesse, you could probably tell us more than others, but because it requires sensitivity to, you know, there is a whole a spectrum of sensitivity that is required in order to meet individuals and humans in their pain and in this kind of complex emotional relational states. And so that sensitivity is high that it can't just be shut off like a light switch. And so this um, emotional capacity and this, you know, which is the sensitivity is high, meaning that twos have a high sensitivity. I can't say it in another way. And so this is actually a, a wild um, advantage and a gift, but also can hurt them because the sensitivity, you know, can be used in a way to help others, but also is um, a source of pain for themselves because then they're feeling everything. They're feeling everything in ways that, well, certainly I, <laughs> I don't like all the twos in my life. Like I, and, and for, for, you know, before I really had a chance to engage the Enneagram, it was something that I easily judged as well. It's like, oh my gosh, just shut it down. Like, you know, I don't know. There was an inability for me to relate to some of these heightened emotional states that are in heightened sensitivity, but also is the source of their badass intuition that most of us don't have. And it's kind of a supernatural state, right? So these are, this is kind of the beginning of how I would describe some of the powerful parts of two. But what that means is that in any given situation, they're going to be able to identify what is kind of best for the humans involved, <laughs> you know, and how, and how do we kind of, um, 
you know, navigate all of the human stuff. Like twos are going to naturally be able to, to engage that really well. And particularly in context of suffering. So, I mean, I could go on. Do you feel that was comprehensive and do you feel I missed anything? So I think it's the beautiful inspiration when you talk about a core brilliance is you should read this type and go, oh my gosh, I, I aspire to be that type, right? And if you're not getting that feeling from what you're engaging with in terms of content, there's a gap in whatever content you're or, or information you're consuming. And I think you painted that picture really well, giving us the example of the two, because the whole time I'm thinking, I want to be this type, right? And I am this type, but that's the, the aspiration when we're at our best. I think what we didn't talk about because we didn't ask about it is the shadow side of that and how all of that, that you, the pic, the picture that you painted can become so destructive. And so that's for another time, but hopefully what you've shared is the inspiration for whether you think you might be a two or you're listening and you're going, okay, now I get it. Like now I want to understand like what type am I and what is my unique capability to bring gifts and talents? To the, what was I designed to do? What can I naturally like lean into and grow into? Well, the last thing I want to say here too is, is that, um, there's a two in all of us. And so if we, if we can't find a place where we're so deeply inspired by whatever the type is, we're cutting off a part of ourselves. And the reason why I say that too is, okay, so there's that part. There's also that we need each type desperately. And also that there's a natural bias that, oh, well, the space of a two is ultimately feminine. And that's also wrong. <laughs> there are male twos that are incredibly masculine. And as a matter of fact, their masculinity combined with their operating system can actually hit a very sweet and unique spot of, of a, a wholly different kind of, of power in, in healing and, and in love. And so these are additional nuances, right? So it's like we all need a two in us because we are humans who have, who are dealing with pain and suffering. We live in a world of suffering. We live in a world of human suffering. And so there is, it's essential and each type is so essential. And that's, I think an important part of it is that not only do we need it and it's essential, but we have it in us. And so we need to do the work to actually see how special and essential each type is and be inspired by that in terms of our own becoming. But what happens is, is that we'll experience a couple twos in our life that are not integrated and really struggling. And we're like, holy shit, I cannot deal. And now we'll reject twos. And on that process, we're rejecting ourselves, which by the way, out, even outside of the Enneagram as a paradigm, this is what humans do that is self-destructive. When we reject others, it doesn't even matter if it's the Enneagram or not, we're rejecting a part of ourselves. So we need to figure out ways to um, separate ourselves from that which we don't like without trying to kill it or diminish it and make it go away. Like, right. So, and, and the Enneagram is a tool to help us do that. Another thing that you've showcased is just how little it's based on behavior, which is another one of the key points in terms of locating your operating type. It's not how you behave. And the more developed you are, the more you start to take on other types behaviors, which is why the focus 
is on core drivers. And that's why that's more helpful in, in locating your operating type. And then another thing that you've mentioned in past is one of the biggest problems and the most important thing to remember as you're getting started is that it's not based on your behaviors, which is in contrast to most personality tools, which are heavily dependent on behaviors. So the reason why reading through the types and looking at the behaviors is not a good starting place is, is because when we're reading these different behaviors, we're reacting to what we like or don't like about each type. And as our biases come forward, we'll start to identify more with certain behaviors and less with others. This is all happening unconsciously. It's what you've just talked about in terms of you know, attaching it to something we've experienced and rejecting it. So a better place to start from is what each of the types is designed to do. And as you've just demonstrated, each type is phenomenal, inspiring, and designed to bring unique gifts and talents into the world. Yeah. And I also want to just say here, you know, to, to finish that out, that even in that description, it wasn't comprehensive. Like that was still a very, you know, a snippet of a summary, because in order to really understand the type, you have to dig into the, the different layers of complexity, right? Like what, what they're driven by and what are the consequences of those things? And meaning like just the consequences for themselves internally and then socially, you know, like, like twos are judged as being emotional. And we've somehow socially decided that emotions are, are less powerful. And I would like to add here that the, the places of the heart are actually, I would argue, the most powerful intelligence. <laughs> and yet, because probably the majority of human beings are not in the heart center and don't have these kind of sensitivities. We can't relate to it. And so we judge it and um, decide that it's less powerful. So my point here is, is that it's even the best descriptions, which I'm not even saying that was the best. That was just kind of off the top of my head. Usually takes me about an hour, <laughs> you know, or, or maybe about 40 minutes to really get into having an overview that is a, that is comprehensive enough to where you can really get the feel of, of each particular type. When we talk about how well-developed or well-adjusted we are, we're also talking about how long we can go without disintegrating. And as humans, we are going to disintegrate. So the measure becomes how quickly we can recover and return to an integrated state. Yeah, I talk about how quickly we can recover as a sign and a mark of strength and how well developed we are, that it's not about never getting stressed out. <laughs> you know, that's not going to happen or, you know, flubbing it up or missing the mark or all the ways that we disintegrate to whatever degrees that is like those, those things are going to happen. And I always like to make point to say that we could be super integrated in one minute and five minutes later, something happens and we're boom, we're not in a good spot. So yes, I, I think one of the minutes, this is an exclusive, but one of the most important elements to consider in terms of integration is how quickly we recover, how quickly we return to a balanced, integrated state. And all of the skills that are required for that, you know, are a lot. And that's why I choose that one. But um, I don't want to reduce it to only that. But that's that is one place. And I think a primary place. Yeah. And we touched on this lightly earlier. But another thing to keep in mind is that there's two facets, probably many more than two, to this work. And one is to understand the Enneagram deeply, right? There's like multi-year journey and there's so much complexity. Another is to understand humans and how to work with them. And that's a separate, unique skill set. And so how to help them identify things within themselves, how to help them create strategies, 
how to help them create practices for using and applying the Enneagram. And most importantly, I would say how to contextualize the Enneagram for each individual. You are noting those places on the map very well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the approach to kind of sum all of this up is understanding the philosophy, which we've kind of brought you through, the intention and how it's different, how it's designed, what the goals of the Enneagram are. All of that is a basis for starting to be able to then work with the Enneagram on the specifics, all considering that this, uh, this individual element will always exist. It will always be present. This is a great place to start. I'm so glad that you said that. I the interesting thing here is we're, you know, we're well into this conversation. And my final comment is the place to start. It's not the end, right? So it's like, it's the cyclical nature of, of the journey and the just beginning of it. And I think that is a huge distinction is that the, the place to start is usually where other people are trying to end. And that is in itself a paradox like we discussed. And so that's the invitation. Yeah. is to be a little bit inverted to engage, you know, the, the inversions in life and in reality that exist, we're just not used to. Well, as much as I would like to say that this was a comprehensive overview, I think we're just starting to skim the surface of this conversation. And I'm really excited to continue this journey um, for people who are listening and who are intrigued or have questions and want to engage uh, you can find us both on LinkedIn and we would love to engage with you. Please let us know what comes to mind. We love the engagement. And um, I think it's important that we kind of say that Chelsea and I, we're imperfect and we're learning too. <laughs> and part of us doing this is actually investing in our own growth and our own learning. There's plenty of places that we can grow. And in terms of the information and the delivery, there's places that we could improve. And so um, we we invite that as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Nicole. It was really fun. Gotcha. I'll say thanks so much. See, see y'all soon. <laughs>